Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Mark 11, 15 through 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The word of the Lord. So we're in a series in which we're looking at the question, who is Jesus? And finding answers to that question presents a lot of challenges. Let me mention just a couple of the biggest challenges. And to do that, I want to go back to something we looked at the first week. Many of you may have seen a meme that went around last year that contrasts the, quote, colonizer Jesus with the, quote, historical Jesus. Um, Here's the first challenge. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of wildly different pictures of who Jesus is. So this meme is critiquing uh, Christians who see Jesus as a conservative white American patriot. And then it's contrasting that picture with what it presents as a picture of the historical Jesus. Now, these are just two of the literally dozens of options to choose from. Sorting through all of these options is a challenge. The second challenge is this. This meme presents colonizer Jesus as a projection onto Jesus of the identities, norms, and values of the people who hold that picture. In other words, it's saying that... People who believe in colonizer Jesus have simply made Jesus into their own image, which is true. I mean, people do that. And this meme contains some very justified critiques. But doesn't that danger exist for all of us? Uh, Whoever made this meme um, is presenting their picture of Jesus as a purely neutral, objective picture. And yet, the facts it chooses to highlight about Jesus... Well, none of them are technically untrue, but what it does is it it stands in very stark contrast to this picture of colonizer Jesus. And as a result, what it does is it ends up creating some false dichotomies. It obscures other historical facts about Jesus in order to elevate the ones it thinks are important. That means that this is really not so much a contrast between colonizer Jesus and historical Jesus, but colonizer Jesus and woke Jesus. The danger of creating Jesus in our own image exists for all of us. Now, I don't think that means it's impossible to find answers to the question, who is Jesus? Otherwise, we wouldn't even be doing this series. 
But it does mean that we have to do the hard work of sifting through the evidence in full awareness of our own bias. So as we explore this question, um, there are some pictures of Jesus that are more prominent in our culture than others. One of the most prominent ideas in our culture is this idea of Jesus is a great teacher. We looked at that the first week. This week, we are looking at uh, another very prominent picture of Jesus in our culture, which is Jesus the revolutionary. Is that true? Um, I have to be just as careful and just as um, cautious to resist my own bias. But as far as I'm able to see in studying multiple sources, I think it's fair to say this. Yes, Jesus is a revolutionary, just not the kind we think. In fact, Jesus is far more radical than we imagine. How? Um, this passage we just read is the place that people point to when they talk about Jesus as a revolutionary. It's called the cleansing of the temple. So let's walk through this passage in three steps. We're going to look at the problem Jesus confronts, uh, second, the problem beneath the problem, and lastly, the solution to that problem. Okay? The problem Jesus confronts, the problem beneath the problem, and lastly, the solution to that problem. So first, let's look at the problem Jesus confronts. And let me just say, one of the things I'm trying to do throughout this series is to focus on events in the life of Jesus that most historians would agree on. And that doesn't mean that I don't think the gospel accounts of Jesus um, give us a reliable account of the whole life of Jesus. I do think that for lots of reasons. But for those who are skeptical, we're trying to look at... Um, at the things that most people would accept, most areas of agreement. And that's one of the reasons that we're listening to professional historians, because this is their area of expertise. And um, one of the things that historians of classics, antiquity, and New Testament, who are full professors at accredited universities, in other words, the experts, one of the, th actually two of the things um, they almost all agree on are this, N.T. Wright is one of the most famous New Testament scholars, and he puts it like this. He says, almost all scholars now writing in the field agree on two basic points. Jesus performed a dramatic action in the temple, and this action was one of the main reasons for his execution. So, what was Jesus doing? Well, in our passage, it says this, that Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, here's what's going on. Uh, the temple was divided into many different sections. Here's a picture of it. In the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. This was the presence of God. And only the high priest could go in there. And even he could only go in once a year on Yom Kippur with a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. The next section out was called the Court of Israel. Only uncircumcised Jewish males could go there. The next section out was called the Court of the Women. Jewish women could go in there. But then the outermost section, which in fact was the biggest section, was called the Court of the Gentiles which is non-Jewish people. They were not allowed to go any further into the temple. In fact, there was a wall around the temple with signs. Here's a picture of one that said this. It said, no foreigners. Anyone apprehended will only have themselves to blame for their ensuing death. How's that for a welcome? <laughs> 
But here's the thing. In order to come to worship, you had to bring a sacrifice. And so they had all these vendors there, people selling animals and exchanging money. It was very stinky and noisy and chaotic and hectic and crowded. And where do you think they set up this operation? In the court of the Gentiles. So not only were they not allowed to go any further into the temple, but the only place they could go was overrun with chaos and noise and commerce. And this is the place they're supposed to find God? Are you starting to see why Jesus might have been so upset? He says um, to the crowd, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That quote, by the way, is from Isaiah chapter 56. Friends, here's the point. Um, throughout the biblical storyline, from day one, God has never just been the God of the Jews. He's God of all the nations. In fact, that word nations is the Greek word ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnic. That means that God's vision for the world has always been a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision. And that vision, that mission goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. And the Garden of Eden was the original Holy of Holies. It was the original place of God's presence. But then in Genesis 3, the first humans rebelled against God, and so God cast them out of the garden. They were cut off from the presence of God. But then everything started falling apart. As a result, we have war and poverty and racism, disease, death, all kinds of natural disasters. The world's falling apart. But then in Genesis 12, there's a major turning point in the story. In Genesis 12, what is God's answer to all the breakdown in the world? God calls Abraham to be father of the nation of Israel. Why? Well, God tells Abraham, he says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice he says, all the families, all the nations welcomed back into the presence of God. Friends, this is the whole reason for Israel's existence. And the reason Jesus is so upset is because instead of welcoming people into the presence of God, they're shutting people out. That's what's going on here. Now, as modern people, we resonate with this because in our culture, we put tremendous value on things like diversity and inclusion. But that vision actually comes to us from the Bible, which sounds counterintuitive to a lot of people, uh, because especially we see the modern American church seems so resistant to those things. Many people who grew up in church have left it or reject it precisely because of the hypocrisy, nationalism, racism, and other things going on in the church. So it makes sense why people would see Christianity as the enemy of diversity and inclusion. And yet, if you look at the history of the early church, you see precisely the opposite. For instance, Larry Hurtado was a world-renowned historian of the early church. In his book, Destroyer of the Gods, he talks about, he says that the things that made the early church so distinctive in the ancient world were also the things that made the church so attractive in the ancient world. Why did so many people become Christians in the ancient world? One of the big reasons, according to historians like Larry Hurtado, is because the church was uh, radically diverse, inclusive, and multi-ethnic. That means that women 
and slaves and different nationalities were flocking to the church because they found a welcome there that they didn't find anywhere else in the world. That, that was the only place where they were treated as equals. Friends, that vision is at the heart of what Jesus is doing here in the temple. The problem of the temple is that instead of welcoming everyone into the presence of God, it was excluding people from the presence of God. Now, why was that happening? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just looked at the problem Jesus confronts, but next we need to see the problem beneath the problem. If we were to go back to that meme we began with, it says that the historical Jesus liberates the oppressed and critiques religious people. And when we look at this passage, that sounds spot on. Because here's Jesus, he sees religious people excluding Gentiles from the presence of God. So Jesus puts on his Gentile Lives Matter t-shirt. He marches into the temple and he stages a protest. Jesus the revolutionary. In this scenario though, who are the oppressors? It's religious people. And the oppressed are these poor Gentiles. But wait a minute, who are these poor Gentiles? Many of them would have been Romans, and Rome at that time was engaged in a military political occupation of Israel. That means that these religious people who are excluding and oppressing Gentiles are themselves oppressed by the Gentiles. And yet Jesus is pronouncing severe judgment on them. Why? Well, remember what we just saw. The story of Israel is the story of God's multi-ethnic, multicultural mission to bring rescue and renewal to the whole world. That's God's mission in this world, and Israel was called to be a part of that mission. So a few weeks ago, we saw that, that Jesus is the true um, Israel, the one who's embodying this multi-ethnic, multicultural mission to bring rescue and renewal to the whole world. And yet, um, a big part of that mission was this promise, and it was throughout the Bible, that one day God would send a king called Messiah, who would rescue them from their enemies, and, um, and bring about a whole new world, in which there's no more war, violence, poverty, hunger, uh, racism, disease, suffering, um, even death. No more of that. And yet the problem is, by the time of Jesus, that universal promise for the whole world, had gotten shrunk down to a very narrow promise for Israel only. So that the Messiah was only going to be a military king who would crush the Romans. And the temple had become a symbol of that. The, instead of being a place of the universal presence of God in the world, the temple had become a symbol of ethnocentric nationalism and anti-Roman revolution. So that instead of rooting their identity in God, Israel was rooting their identity in the revolution. And that was twisting them into the very thing they were fighting against. Why? Because they forgot who their real enemy is. Not the Romans, but the powers of sin and death that alienate us from God. The temple was supposed to be Garden of Eden 2.0. It was supposed to be the place of God's universal presence for all of the world. What a beautiful image. We love that. And yet the only reason the temple could be the place of God's universal presence in the world is because the temple was also the place of sacrifice and atonement for sin. And we do not love that. In fact, in our culture, we abhor this, these ideas of human sin and especially blood atonement. 
We think, how primitive, how regressive. And yet, um, that's at the heart of what Jesus is doing here in the temple. Everything Jesus is doing in the temple is centered around that reality that we're alienated from God. That's the problem beneath the problem. So in Genesis 3, when the first humans rebel against God, God casts them out of the garden. They're cut off from the presence of God, alienated from their true home. And ever since then, we all experience this feeling of being cut off and alienated from our true home. This is a universal human experience. For instance, um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, was a famous Buddhist uh, monk and writer and activist. He's uh, widely uh, renowned as being the father of modern uh, mindfulness in the West, the guy who introduced it to the West. Uh, he wrote a book once called Going Home, which, by the way, what a great title. But in that book, he describes our experience, and he says this. He says, sometimes we have a feeling of alienation. We feel lonely and as if we are cut off from everything. We have been a wanderer and have tried hard, but have never been able to reach our true home. Man, what a great description of, of that experience we all feel. And yet, here's the question. Why do we feel so cut off? Buddhism says that that experience we all feel is a subjective illusion and that if we just practice mindfulness that we can transcend that illusion and we would realize that we're already all, um, always home in the same way that a wave is always home in the ocean. And yet, what if this experience we have of feeling alienated and cut off, what if that isn't an illusion? What if that experience we have is pointing to an objective reality? Let me explain what I mean. Um, if I were to say chocolate ice cream is the best, and you were to say, no, vanilla is the best, you fool. Those are subjective statements, right? In other words, they're just describing what you or I think or feel. But if, if we were to say, many human beings enjoy ice cream, that's a statement about an objective reality. In other words, it doesn't depend on what you or I think or feel. It's describing something that's real, regardless of what we think. Does that make sense? Okay, let's raise the stakes a little bit. One of the big debates in our culture today is on the issue of free speech. Many people say, hey, we should be able to talk about controversial issues, but pretty much everybody agrees that hate speech should never be allowed. Why? Because hate speech is not in the same category as debatable questions like which form of government is best or which economic policies are best. Hate speech violates objective realities like the dignity and rights of certain human beings. And, and when that happens, when those rights are violated, those rights and, and dignity, those are objective realities that exist regardless of what you or I think about it. So if somebody violates the rights of a human being, of course that human being is going to experience it subjectively, but that subjective experience is pointing to an objective reality that a violation has occurred, a wrong has been committed, and the only way for, for that wrong to be um, righted is for justice to be enacted. In fact, here's the crucial point. Um, the deeper the evil, the more justice is required. So for instance, Martin Luther King, <coughs> excuse me, um, one of his seminal books was called Why We Can't Wait. 
Uh, many people were criticizing Dr. King. They were saying, hey, why do you have to be such an agitator? Our society will eventually get better. Why can't you just chill out and wait for that to happen? And Dr. King was saying, no, we can't wait. The, the, the evil of this world demands justice. That's an objective reality that requires an objective solution. He's saying to ignore the demands of justice would itself be an even greater injustice. Friends, here's the point. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden by God, God put a flaming sword there to guard the way back into the garden. The flaming sword was a sign of relational cutoff, but it was also a sign of justice. That means it's not just a subjective feeling, it's an objective reality that a violation has occurred, a wrong has been committed, and the only way for the relationship to be mended is for justice to be enacted. And by the way, we all know exactly what this means. Have you ever had somebody deeply wrong you, deeply hurt you, but then they try to come back and act like nothing happened? How does that feel? You're like, what's wrong with you? What, what are you doing? Don't you, we both know what happened. How can you come back and act like nothing happened? The only way for the relationship to be mended is for us to deal with that sword, to deal with the cutoff, to deal with that objective thing that happened. Friends, um, Here's the point, and we talked about this last week. Whenever we root our identity in something other than God, that creates a relational cutoff between us and God. A violation has happened now. There's an objective reality. It's not just a subjective experience. It's an objective violation. And the only way for that relationship to be mended is for us to deal with the sword, for somebody to go under the sword so that we can get back into relationship with God. Now, what does that mean, and how does that happen? Well, that leads to our last point. We've looked at the problem Jesus confronts. We've just seen the problem beneath the problem. But lastly, we need to look at the solution to that problem. Friends, the temple stood as a, a, a monument to the fact that sin and death and alienation from God are not just a subjective experience, but an objective reality. The temple was a massive reminder of that every single day of their lives. And so um, that actually brings us to one of that collisions with our culture we were just talking about. You know, because the question comes up over and over and over again in our culture. People might say, okay, maybe our alienation from God is an objective reality, but why the need for blood sacrifice? Why can't God just forgive? That's one of the biggest challenges and biggest questions that we modern people wrestle with. Why can't God just forgive? Well, I think one way of getting toward an answer to that question is to turn the question back on ourselves. Why can't we just forgive? Many of you have heard of things that have happened to other people. Maybe things like this have happened to you. Things that are so heinous, so wicked, so evil that we call them unforgivable. We saw just a few moments ago that real justice cries out, I mean, real evil cries out for real justice. I mean, when some violation has occurred, when some wrong has been committed, that cries out for justice. It's not just a subjective feeling, it's an objective reality that requires an objective solution. And so when we ask the question, why can't God forgive, we need to ask ourselves the question, well, why can't we forgive? The answer is because the deeper the evil, the greater the wrong, the harder it is to forgive. In fact, the, at that level of evil, forgiveness feels like a denial of justice. We need to pay attention to that. 
So for instance, uh, you may remember um, Botham Jean. He was an unarmed African-American man who was shot to death in his own apartment by an off-duty police officer who says that she thought she was in her own apartment and that he was a burglar. She was eventually convicted of murder, but you may also remember that during the sentencing, um, Botham's brother uh, publicly forgave the woman. He even gave her a hug. And immediately, the whole thing went viral. People on social media celebrating um, this man who forgave the woman who murdered his brother. And you know, um, here's the problem, especially as I was listening to my own brothers and sisters of color when this was happening, Here's the problem. For many African Americans, the rush to forgiveness um, feels like uh, a failure to cry out for justice. In other words, when white people just expect black people to forgive over and over and over, to, to forgive the ongoing violence and brutality of this world, that can feel like sweeping evil under the rug. In fact, don't listen to me, white man. Um, let's listen to Jamar Tisby. Um, he's an African-American historian, writer, and he's a Christian. He wrote about this for the Washington Post, and he said this, of course Jesus urges his followers to forgive. The risk of offering such speedy forgiveness is that not nearly enough attention is given to the injustice itself. He goes on to say, instant absolution minimizes the magnitude of injustice. Can we read that again? Instant absolution minimizes the magnitude of injustice. It distracts attention from the change needed to prevent such tragedies from occurring. The same Bible that urges forgiveness also urges justice. The rush to forgiveness, the, 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 the celebration of speedy forgiveness can feel like a denial of justice. When we ask the question, why can't God just forgive? We have to ask ourselves the same question. Why can't we just forgive? And when we frame the question like that, that helps us toward an answer to the question. Because the question really isn't, can we forgive? Of course we can. The real question is, what would it cost us to forgive? Forgiveness means that when somebody wrongs you, and I mean really wrongs you, Forgiveness means that instead of cursing them, condemning them, and punishing them, we absorb the curse, the condemnation, and the punishment. That feels like going under the sword. And it is for them. Friends, here's what all of this means. Forgiveness is not a denial of justice, it's a transfer of justice. Forgiveness is not a denial of justice, it's a transfer of justice. When we ask the question, why can't God forgive? The answer is he can and he does. But what does it cost God to forgive? Forgiveness for God means that instead of making you go under the sword, he goes under the sword for you. That instead of making you pay, he pays. Forgiveness means that, that someone else is your substitute. That is not a denial of justice. That is a transfer of justice. And friends, that's exactly what happens at the temple. And Jesus, when he comes to the temple, now we're starting to see that not only is he pronouncing judgment on the temple, Jesus is replacing the temple by fulfilling everything the temple was pointing to. In Matthew chapter 12, religious leaders are criticizing Jesus because he's violating the Sabbath. He's violating the law that was taught every day in the temple. But Jesus 
says this. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the true temple on earth. He's the true one who came to be and embody and fulfill everything the temple was pointing to in his own body because Jesus is the true presence of God on earth, but only because he's also the true temple, the true sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus did everything necessary. He went under the sword for you in order to make a way back for you into the presence of God, back to our true home. So if you're here this morning and you're um, exploring faith, listen, um, this is one of the hardest realities about Jesus for us to grapple with. This idea um, of sacrifice and atonement, of sin and death and alienation from God that requires an objective solution. That's a hard reality to grapple with. It means not just facing the reality of evil in the world, but facing the reality, the objective reality of evil in our own lives. It means facing the reality that whenever we root our identity in something other than God, and we all do that, then there's a relational cutoff there between us and God. And we need somebody to go under the sword for us in order for us to find a way back into that relationship. Those are hard realities to face. In fact, if we go back to that book, Thich Nhat Hanh says this in his book, Going Home. He says, the image of Jesus on the cross is a very painful image for me. It does not convey joy or peace. And this does not do justice to Jesus. We don't want a crucified Jesus. But the Jesus we meet throughout the gospel says, then you don't want me. Because of course the cross doesn't do justice to me. That's the point. It was a denial of justice for me, so it could be a transfer of justice for you. Will you receive the gift of life I died to give to you? And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, I want to encourage us all to listen to Jesus' critique at the temple. You know, as we've just seen, the cross already creates enough of an obstacle for people to, to have faith in Jesus. Let's not add more obstacles to that. Let's not create more offense than the gospel already contains. So, you know, whenever we root our identity in something other than God, the more defensive and angry and hostile we become when something threatens that identity. And our world is full of that right now. Friends, until Jesus returns to make all things new, the church is called to be a temple of God's presence in this world, a place um, where we care for the needy, where we advocate for the oppressed, and where we welcome people, all people, all nations, back into the presence of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Is that true of us? May it ever be so. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, we thank you that you are always, always have been and always will be God of all the nations, God of all the world, God of all people. Not just one special people, not just one unique people, but all people. And we praise you that your vision um, is so grand and so infinite that you came to earth as a human being, died on a cross in order to be the true temple we need to, to heal that cutoff, to heal the violation so that we could find our way back to you, back to our true home in you. We pray this morning for those of us who are spiritually curious or maybe even spiritually skeptical that you would help us to grapple with the hard realities of the cross, of facing the evil in the world and facing the evil in ourselves.
But we also pray for us as a church this morning, Lord, that you would help us to not add any more offense to the gospel, to not create more obstacles. But the more we look to you, Lord Jesus, the more we would see you as the true temple, the true one who on the cross removes all the obstacles to, between us and God. And that the more we see that, the more that radical welcome will shape us and create the same welcome in our lives for others. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.